Okay, so welcome everyone. Welcome to this Brichem Indonesia webinar series, Indonesia, the giant of Southeast Asia. I am Asti, events coordinator at Brichem Indonesia. Today's Brichem webinar series is proudly supported by HSBC. And today we are very delighted to welcome our three panelists, Sumit Duta, President Director of PT Bank HSBC Indonesia, Davy Chidel, Managing Director of Cushman and Wakefield Indonesia, and last but not least, Amit Kaswani, Chief Digital Officer of PT MAT Active Adi Perkasa TBK. Today's session will be moderated by Chris Ren, the Executive Director of Pichan Indonesia. And before we start, allow me to review the functionality of this webinar. Today's webinar is being recorded and we will be able to share a link with you when it's available after this webinar is completed. All the in participants will be muted to avoid background noises that may distract you from listening to this webinar and also to enable our panelists to present without interruption. And if you have any questions, please type them into the Q&A box at any time. It is located at the bottom center of your screen. And we will have time for Q&A session at the end to answer your questions. Okay, now I'm going to hand the screen over to Chris Ren, the Executive Director of Bleachem, who is going to start today's webinar. Thank you very much, Asti. Um, a very good afternoon to those people who are based in Indonesia or in the Southeast Asia region. Good morning to a number of people that are also registered and have checked in from the UK. Um, it's a pleasure uh, to be uh, moderating this particular session with, uh, with Summit, uh, with David, with Amit. Thank you to the three of you for joining us and we'll be uh, introducing a, a newer member to the HSBC team a little bit later. Um, as many of you uh, know, uh, certainly Britcham members know that uh, over recent years at our annual general meeting, uh, Summit has been kind enough to give us his own sort of personal state of the nation type address. Um, there is no uh, AGM uh, for now anyway, that's been postponed to October. Um, and um, with Summit leaving us uh, at the end of this month, he very kindly agreed to share some of his thoughts on his time here in Indonesia and give us a little bit of a forward look as to how he sees things might pan out uh, post-COVID. And with that, I think um, I, I'd like to begin by uh, strangely referring to one of the questions that has come in earlier. And that question is, why is Indonesia the giant? Um, I don't think I'm going to take anything away from the uh, two or three slides that Summit's got. I think it will become very, very clear why Indonesia has become or is the giant of Southeast Asia. So with that, I would just like to uh, hand over now to Summit Duta. As uh, Asti mentioned, do please pop questions in the box. Uh, we'll try to bundle them together for one or two of you. We'll also try and get you on screen to ask that question personally. Summit. Thank you, Chris. Um, hi, everyone. As Chris has mentioned, um, it's, um, it's become something of a tradition that we have this um, event every year. And I think it's also become a tradition 
that in the course of my address or after I finished my address, my audience inevitably becomes much more depressed than they were at the start of my presentation when they hear my forecast um, in terms of economics and stuff. So, um, you know, we are obviously in a very strange world, a world which um, none of us could have predicted we would be in um, around the middle of 2020. Um, and I wanted to take you through just a couple of slides to outline Indonesia as it is today. Is it a giant? Is it a sleeping giant? Is it a dormant giant? And how Indonesia copes um, with COVID, post-COVID. Yeah. So, you know, Indonesia over the last decade, over the last 15 years, has consistently been a high potential country. Demographics have always been good. GDP growth rate has always been good. And I think the key question is, it's great that it's a high potential country, but can Indonesia and when Indonesia will become a high performance country, I think is a question which many of us have on our, on our minds. So let's take a look at, you know, Chris, Chris asked the question at the start, right? One of the giants of Asia. So why is it a giant? Well, it's a giant because it's big. Close to 280 million people, fourth highest population in the world. It has a GDP of over a trillion US dollars. Um, there are only a very few select countries in that trillion dollar bracket club. Over the last few years, over the last decade, it has a GDP growth rate of 5% consistently. Um, they've been trying to do, um, you know, trying to make some improvements in some key areas in terms of ease of doing business. At one time, four years ago, it was 120th in global rankings. It's now significantly better to 73rd. Um, also a strong focus in terms of looking at corruption and bribery. Um, still 85th. Yeah, so 85th least corrupt is, is not a, a, a hugely flattering um, indicator, but it's improved. And I think that's the, you know, the trajectory and the direction I think is really important. A um, couple of things which, you know, as a banker, again, we, you know, give us a lot of confidence in Indonesia after the, the you know, after the troubles that the country faced in 97, 98, they've been pretty conservative in how they manage debt. Um, and as you can see, um, it has the lowest public debt to GDP ratio in Asia. And if you add up all kinds of debt, right, including debt taken by corporates, debt taken by individuals, by households, if you add up all the debt, that the country owes, um, the debt to GDP ratio is less than 100%, it's around 80%, and is the only country in Asia with a debt to G uh, GDP ratio below, of below 100%. Just for comparison, Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan are all in the 400% range. So the country has managed its finances in a very conservative fashion. And when you look at macroeconomics, right, for the last 18 months, Inflation has been below 3%, which is pretty remarkable for an emerging market. Um, foreign exchange reserves have been pretty robust. It hit $125 billion some time ago, which was the highest ever foreign exchange reserve that Indonesia has ever had. Um, the rupiah, you know, it's frequently disparaged, but actually the rupiah as a currency vis-a-vis -vis the US dollar for the last two years has been remarkably stable. And even though when COVID started, it dropped, you know, like a stone to 16,000, 17,000, it has recovered strongly back since. So 
So when you, when you look at the macroeconomics, you look at the demographics of, of Indonesia, the numbers look really good, right? The key question is, um, how do we translate again that potential into performance? We are in a very volatile frame of, in terms of time frame, you know, in terms of what's happening globally. Of course, we've got COVID playing itself out, but even outside COVID, right? Even before COVID started, you had US-China trade issues gradually coming to the fore, playing itself out, and you had the stock market kind of, you know, flipping based on what President Trump said one day and what he said the next day. Um, so a lot of things hinge, right, on US and China. Um, as we move forward, political tensions continue to rise in different parts of the world. Um, you know, we know there are things happening in Hong Kong. Sometime back, there was this skirmish between China and India. Um, and these tensions continue to play themselves out. And they continue to affect um, economic trends across the rest of the world because no one likes um, a world where there's a potential danger of tension and of escalating tension. COVID-19, of course, um, has already had a significant impact on the economy. Um, there are over 100 million people who are jobless directly or indirectly because of COVID-19 all across the world. Um, a huge amount of public spending has been, has been brought into play to try and combat the effects of COVID-19. And therefore, you have a fairly strange situation where you see a lot of people, you know, um, going, going jobless, but at the same time, the stock market seems to be doing reasonably well because a lot of money is coming into the markets. But we know that a lot of um, um, companies are facing problems, you know, um, certain sectors, tourism, travel, airlines, and other industries are in problems today and might be in problems going forward. And, you know, I know there are a lot of people making predictions in terms of GDP growth rates for different countries. Um, my personal view is it's just too easy, it's just too early to call anything at this point in time because we don't know how long this COVID-19 story will play out. Um, I know there are a lot of theories, you know, there's talks of different um, um, approaches and potential, um, um, you know, solutions. But to my mind, the story has a long way to play out. So what kind of GDP rate or GDP growth or negative growth that countries and the global world experiences over the next six months to 12 months, I really don't think anyone has um, the correct answer as of yet. So we just have to wait and see what happens. Um, taking a look at Indonesia, um, I think the country took, a, the, the government took a bit of time to wake up to the reality. Um, at a point in time when other countries were, were talking about lockdowns and implementing serious, me uh, serious measures, it seemed like Indonesia was kind of a little bit sleeping at the wheel. Um, it took some time before decisions got taken. There's a lot of debate. And I know we, for those of us living in Indonesia, um, there was a concern that the country was reacting too slow, too late. We know the medical system in Indonesia is not the best. Um, so there were a lot of concerns across the board on how the government was tackling this. On hindsight, you know, the fact that the government allowed manufacturing and industry to continue, 
the fact that there was no complete shutdown like we saw in many other countries, um, I think you know the outcome has arguably been a lot better than many of us expected. Um, as I said, the story is not over as yet, so not not casting a verdict on the government's um, quality of response, but as we are today, I would argue that um, the outcome has been better than many of us expected. On the economic side, um, again, as a banker, we do see some companies which are under stress. Um, we know that companies which are over leveraged, um, traditionally when the tide goes out, they find themselves in, in difficult circumstance and we expect that to happen this time around. Um, there's talk about some SOEs being over leveraged and we will see how these SOEs fare. But you know, in terms of um, in terms of positive news, right? We continue to see overseas and international funds entering the market. There have been a stream of bond issuances by the government of Indonesia, by state-owned enterprises in Indonesia, and they've all been met with a fairly decent response. So um, we are seeing funds continuing to come into Indonesia, and that's a good sign for us. What does life look like once we come back to some semblance of normalcy, right? Difficult to predict, but just some thoughts from my side. Um, the, 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 the trade war between US and China seems to continue, and it doesn't look like there's going to be an end any point of time soon. Um, in fact, it looks like gradually countries are kind of being pressurized to kind of choose sides. You want to be on this side or on that side. Um, we expect that, you know, given, given what the world has gone through during COVID, when all of this comes to an end, when the world comes back to normalcy, there might be a surge of nationalism. There was already, even before COVID, right, some sentiment of anti-globalization. You had people saying, you know, let's buy internally, let's not export so much, let's not, let's not import so much, let's increase trade barriers, all of which actually is contrary to the direction um, of the last 10, 15 years. Um, so we expect that there will continue being noise and, you know, just as Donald Trump says, make America great, different countries will want to focus primarily on domestic priorities. At the same time, economic realities will continue to prevail. And companies will need to continue to make sure to survive that they can generate more revenue and they can potentially reduce the costs. So, you know, we've seen over the last 15, 20 years, wealth, manufacturing, production, consumption, gradually, slowly moving from west to east, moving into Asia moving into ASEAN, and we expect that to continue because economic realities and commercial realities will continue to ensure that companies begin looking to ASEAN, looking to Asia as a burgeoning, as a, as a prospective, strong, flourishing trade block, as a block which has Indonesia, which contributes to 35% of ASEAN GDP, 40% to ASEAN population, which has Vietnam, Philippines, Thailand, Myanmar, Cambodia, Singapore, Malaysia. So, you know, a bunch of really, really vibrant countries. 
And we actually expect also, given, you know, given that COVID has made everyone sit up and realize that you can't really put all your eggs into one basket. We actually expect a lot of companies will evaluate if they have over dependence on any one Asian market. Uh, China obviously comes to sort of, you know, is often named. And if they actually want to progress more aggressively on a China plus one or China plus two um, kind of strategy. If that were to happen, we expect that ASEAN countries would be in the limelight um, from a geographic proximity. Um, proximity, you know, um, being in Asia makes a lot of sense. Um, supply chain in some countries are more developed than in other countries, but these countries allow you to manufacture, they allow you to produce. They also help you to consume, right? So, you know, um, ASEAN is the home to um, over a billion people. Um, very strong, very educated demographic profile. And many of these countries recognizing that life post-COVID will depend on their abilities to attract foreign investment, actually rolling out the red carpet. Um, and we, we're actually seeing, seeing that, you know, yes, ASEAN is a trade block, but at the same time, countries within ASEAN understand that when an international company is looking to enter ASEAN, they will be looking to evaluate a Vietnam vis-a-vis -a, -vis a Philippines, vis-a-vis -a, -vis a Thailand, vis-a-vis -vis Indonesia, um, and whichever country offers the best deal and gives them the most prospects for the next 15, 20 years is likely to win investment. So many countries are rolling on the red carpet. Indonesia, as the largest country in ASEAN, logically should be a potential beneficiary. You know, we discussed at the start about the demographics of Indonesia, about the macroeconomics. You know, if you just look at the numbers, you look at the data, you would expect that every single multinational company in the world would be knocking on Indonesia's doors, eager to come into this country. But the fact is, that's not always the case. Um, sometime back, there was this much publicized matter about 33 companies exiting China and all going to Vietnam and Indonesia getting not a single one of these companies. So, you know, there are, there are some reasons as to why companies, despite the macroeconomics, despite the demographics, despite the vast potential of Indonesia, there's some reasons why not all companies are making a beeline for this country. Some Companies find the regulations in, in Indonesia very complex, sometimes conflicting. Um, the president has made a big focus in terms of passing the omnibus law and also in terms of passing the labor law. Um, if the government can make it easier to do business here, if the government can actually reduce the regulatory burden on companies, we expect it will be a significant plus. Um, for Indonesia Incorporated. Sometimes companies complain that, you know, on one hand, you've got President Jokowi, you've got the cabinet active, actively courting and encouraging foreign investment. But when they actually come into the country and they deal with the second tier or the third tier of the government apparatus, the, the welcome isn't all that evident. So, um, you know, in terms of is does Indonesia really welcome foreign investment? Will that attitude continue to be valid for the next five, 10, 15 years? Or is it just that people say sometimes in Indonesia, um, bad times make for good policy. So when times are tough, 
then the red carpet is rolled out, foreign investment is courted. When times become good, then sometimes people wonder about, oh, should we go back and encourage domestic suppliers and domestic manufacturers at the expense of foreign investment? So I think having a structured, consistent focus to court foreign investment would be a significant plus point for the government. Um, and, you know, um, we have been talking to many ministries. We believe the government understands that they are facing serious competition to attract investment from Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines, and a bunch of other ASEAN and Asian countries. Um, we believe the government is trying to enhance its attractiveness to investors. So if they actually do take some concrete steps to bring investment into the country, to nurture it, to, to support it, we believe Indonesia could be a potential beneficiary of the global review of the economic order. But if not, Indonesia could be a potential victim. So on that happy and encouraging note, I will pause and I'll pass it across to, to Chris. Um, Chris, over to you. Potential victim, happy note, Summit. <laughs> um, we'll, I think we'll come back to uh, the, the issues on whether Indonesia can be a potential beneficiary because this has been a, a subject that uh, for a number of years now keeps on coming back when, when we have cycles of opportunity. Um, so some of our uh, members have uh, wondered why we've chosen to put you together with um, uh, somebody representing the property sector, somebody also representing the retail sector. Um, I think as many of us know, the property sector is often regarded as a uh, barometer of different types of swing in uh, commercial activity and mood. And of course, for Indonesia, the retail sector is going to be very, very heavily uh, depended upon uh, helping the country prove once again that it has the resilience through the uh, huge volume of um, consumer spending that contributes to GDP in the country. Um, it's that resilience that uh, has uh, meant that Indonesia has not suffered from recessions in the same way as other countries in previous downturns. Um, but I, I think we'll begin first of all by just uh, getting a little bit of scene setting from David Cheadle. Um, David uh, is Managing Director of Cushman and Wakefield. Um, they have released a piece of work very, very recently that is extremely topical, uh, referring to the future of the workplace, and um, it's specifically called Experience Per Square Foot, um, and really is, is showing a little bit of um, a direction as to where business might be going in the future post COVID in terms of how it approaches its property needs and usage. Um, David, over to you. So thank, thank you for that. As you rightly said, you know, the, the property sector is a barometer of the economy, but it's, a, it's a, a lag indicator rather than a lead indicator because given the nature of property, it's, it takes longer to react to what's happening in, in uh, the economy and the, and the markets generally. Uh, you're, you're right about the, the piece of work that we did. We, we actually undertook a, a study with about 40,000 uh, respondents, uh, global corporates, asking them about what they, their experience had been for their employees. So we called this experience per square foot at home. And what came out of that is that actually most organizations have, have actually found uh, that the transition to working remotely and, and from home has actually been 
uh, less of a headache than they expected and actually people have been a lot more productive. Uh, and this is not across the board. This is, there is a generational and cultural uh, differences within organizations. And in fact, what, what they found is that the millennials and, the, and the, the sort of Gen Zs are the ones that have actually struggled the most uh, it, uh, to be able to, uh, to, to work from home. And it's actually the, the older folks uh, like ourselves who, who have actually found that transition to be a lot easier. And that may be due to domestic situation, uh, whether you're a caregiver or you live with extended family or just your domestic setup and ability to actually um, work from home in a, in a, focused, uh, in a focused environment. So this, this really is um, really challenging organizations to start to think about what is their longer term outlook for how they're going to operate businesses. Uh, and, and really, does this mark the death of the, the, the office as we traditionally knew it? And I think the consensus that's come out of this is what is going to happen is that we're going to see organizations embracing, as we've had to do, but consciously embracing a, um, an ecosystem of where people and employees are allowed to work in order to have that level of engagement within organizations across generations and across functions, which really gives people the choice. So this is really going beyond what we've been calling agile working to give people a lot more flexibility and choice. And this really will be what is gonna to happen uh, to the office environment in the future. And the office will become part of an ecosystem so whether you are working from traditional office or from home or from some other remote location, such as a co-working environment or even the, the local cafe, this is going to be the way in which we will see things change going into the future. Now, if we look at uh, to your first uh, question that you, you, you asked, Chris, about what has been happening with the real estate market here in Indonesia in what is really only a, a few short weeks uh, since really we saw the impact begin to happen here in mid-March. Um, unfortunately, as, as um, Summit uh, um, mentioned earlier in his, in his address, it's still very much too early to, 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 to see the real impact um, translating through into real estate data. So we, we actually, had, in the beginning of this year, we had begun to see some green shoots of recovery in the property sector here, particularly for the office market, where we had, we've been in a very high oversupply situation for several years now. And we have begun to see an uptick in demand in the tail end of last year and going into this year. And obviously what has happened is that all of those requirements and expansions and relocations have effectively all gone on hold especially those that were not at a very advanced stage of, of process. So certainly we, we were expecting to see a continued improvement in the demand side going into this year, and that has effectively come to a crashing standstill. And whilst we don't see that yet in the data, we're certainly expecting that we'll continue to see the Jakarta office market remaining significant oversupply. And really the recovery has been pushed back by uh, this COVID um, uh, pandemic and its impact on the property sector here, particularly the office sector. Uh, I'm sure Amit will talk a little bit about how the retail uh, has been impacted by this, whether we're really seeing the, are we seeing the death of retail malls? Are we seeing the, uh, really the, 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 the um, acceleration of the adoption of, of e-commerce? Uh, so I won't, I won't steal any thunder there, but certainly if we talk about the physical bricks and mortar, uh, obviously the retail sector, because malls have been closed here, has certainly seen a very, very significant impact, and particularly where 
in the retail sector in Indonesia, so much of the malls are, are um, um, around food and beverage and lifestyle entertainment. And we know that that has come to a crashing standstill in, in the last few, few months. So I think there are a lot of challenges about how the real estate sector is going to recover in terms of you know, the physical occupancy in terms of offices and businesses, and also where we shop and we leisure. Uh, those are the ones that are going to have to re really rethink the, the sort of offering that has been given either by companies to their employees or by the retailers to their, to their customers. And um, you know, perhaps, Chris, we can talk a little bit later about how condominium market and industrial has also been impacted because there's a lot of other issues that we've been seeing around that. But in, in terms of office and retail, I think that's been the biggest near-term impact that we've seen. Of course, apart from hospitality and uh, the hotel sectors where um, there's been massive impact there also. Um, thanks. Thanks very much, David. So um, property, one of definitely two sectors that are going to be challenged to change. The other sector, um, I think we're all pretty sure, is going to be the retail sector. Um, uh, Amit is chief uh, digital officer for um, um, Mitra Adi Picasso. Um, this is a group that uh, we all know has a portfolio of many, many international brands, um, highly visible uh, in the physical sense in, in all the malls throughout Indonesia. Um, but um, Amit, in terms of your role, presumably challenged to, um, to, to take advantage of the changes and advancement in uh, digital, in technology, um, how do you see the changes moving? Uh, thanks, Chris. So, uh, you know, we do have over 2,000 locations in Indonesia right now, and we cover various segments from F&B, from sports, lifestyle, fashion, department stores. Uh, certainly, as um, if we take a look back in the last 18 months, we've done significant investments around technology, uh, and especially from an omni-channel. I know omni-channel by itself is a buzzword, uh, but what it really means for us as, a, as an organization is we've developed the capabilities to really leverage our existing real estate to uh, optimize our e-commerce. Um, what we're certainly seeing is as the stores have closed down and they've been closed for 60 days, the, um, the online behavior is, is accelerated. I think we've started seeing, you know, uh, numbers close to 10x, but again, from a very small base. Um, what we foresee right now is uh, from a real estate and, and physical store, uh, the positive thing is we've got some really good support from all the uh, mall uh, owners and, and, and operators in terms of uh, this tough time. Um, from, a, from an e-commerce perspective, the focus for us continues to try and leverage our existing locations from a store uh, to, to optimize our inventory the second is really focus on customer acquisition and how we start connecting with customers. Uh, behavior has changed. Uh, we've developed new channels which are far more tactical even than e-commerce. Uh, people are very comfortable using WhatsApp as a channel. So really looking at how we can be there for our customers. Uh, so one is our e-commerce has grown over 10x in these uh, last uh, two months. Um, it's here to stay. Uh, we obviously, uh, the, the demand will taper off online, uh, but it's certainly going to have a higher base than pre-COVID. Uh, number three is we're going to continue investing around technology to optimize that e-commerce uh, offering. Uh, number four, we don't see, uh, you know, retail stores are here to, to stay. Um, uh, this is a blip. Uh, 
Uh, malls certainly have reduced a uh, number of people allowed to come in, but we're starting to see some uh, some recoveries. Of course, we're in month in week number two, so it's it's tough to say. But if we look back at businesses that we have in Thailand and Philippines, uh, we expect some sort of recovery. I don't think we'll start seeing um, 2019 numbers till probably 2021. Uh, 2020 is all about riding through it and uh, continue investment and and above all is um, connect with our customers more, customer acquisition, really leverage what we can do from uh, connecting with customers and looking at additional channels, uh, you know, things like connecting with customers through WhatsApp, uh, not only e-commerce, but being far more tactical and better service, uh, you know, same day deliveries are all in terms of the strategy that, that we're looking at, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, thanks, Amit. Um, in recent webinars, we've, um, we've had guests from the e-commerce space. We've also had uh, guests from logistics as well. Um, and a talking point seems to uh, often revolve around uh, two things. One is, is, is Indonesia's physical infrastructure ready to support significant growth in e-commerce in terms of meeting customer expectations. And the second thing is around um, cost. There are greater costs in compliance towards safety and so on for for just about everybody. And and who will bear this cost and will customers ultimately be be happy to to be the ones shouldering the cost? Uh, what, What are your own views on both of those two points, Amit? Um, I think from an infrastructure perspective, um, it's developing. We're not there yet. Um, Online sales contributions are not close to where the more development markets are, but I can tell you that uh, things around warehousing, things around cost of shipping products to customers are still relatively low. Uh, We can get products to customer on average of $1 to $2. Um, Infrastructure is developing. Um, Is it there to support the current levels? I think there's still work to do. Um, there's a lot of investment coming in. We see a lot of, you know, people like Shopee and Lazard and Blibli are, are paving the way. Um, so we're not there yet, but I think uh, we've seen accelerated investments and costs around supply chain are fairly reasonable, both in terms of storage and delivery to customers. Um, in terms of additional costs from a security and, you know, just where we are today, I don't think the Indonesian consumer is going to be able to to support that. We're going to have to look at optimizing ways of, you know, how do we serve our customers? Um, And that's something that we're currently looking at. Uh, Our entire stores have had to change uh, in terms of how customers, uh, you know, number of customers who can get in that, of course, affects everything we do from a merchandising perspective, uh, how much time they can spend in stores. Uh, how do we need to manage, you know, because our human capital, we've got, you know, over 25,000 uh, employees at stores. How do we make sure that it's the best and safest uh, secure environment for them? There are going to be costs around that. Uh, it's still unclear how that's going to be passed on, if it's going to be us or it's going to be the end consumer. Um, th- thank you. Well, while while I've got you and you're on a roll. Um, it's been mentioned to me that that um, businesses like yours um, with with such huge investment in physical space um, and, and 
and rising to the challenge to rapidly develop um, and innovate, as you say, uh, in the e-commerce space. Is there any sense of competition within your group um, that, that could in some way be a little bit unhealthy? Um, between each other or just generally in the market? But between each other. So the, the, the push for e-commerce and also the need to keep the physical side competitive and, uh, and manageable. You know, uh, the, the only good thing we've seen around this COVID situation is everybody who's been in our business and has been more on the physical side has seen the value. Um, so what we're seeing is, is a couple of things. At a board level, there's, uh, I mean, this has happened even before COVID. You know, everybody from our uh, shareholders, group CEO has, has already put in a mandate in terms of becoming a truly omni-channel business. So the investments have happened and it's been at a holistic group level. Uh, you know, we've got the sports business, we've got fashion, we've got uh, Starbucks. So, so there is a conscious decision to invest behind technology, and that's holistically across all our divisions. Um, what we have seen also is our existing teams who manage the operations have really seen the value of getting involved in the digital side because close to 50% of all our digital sales are actually fulfilled from stores. What that does is it optimizes, you know, it gives us the opportunity to really optimize those costs from, an, from a physical brick and mortar store. Our store staff also get incentivized on fulfilling those orders. Uh, so we see a really uh, a good alignment across all functions and all departments, but it has started from this investment. It's been about 18 to 24 months. It, we certainly dabbled into it. I've been in the organization for close to five and a half years. It was a very, crawl, walk, run approach. Um, we went through the crawl and I think now we're in that walking phase where um, uh, every single technology stack in the business is being looked at from an omni-channel perspective. Um, and three, every single stakeholder across the business, could it be merchandising, could it be operations, could it be finance? Everybody now is taking a very active interest in terms of what digital means, uh, because it's not only the digital sales, it's what digital does from enabling sales across all our channels. That, thank you, thank you for, for that response. Um, Summit, you, you've, you've listened to two, uh, two sectors or representatives of two sectors that um, I, I think the expression we, we would use are in challenging times. Um, uh, particularly so and, and visibly so as a banker as a banker how do you regard these two sectors so um i think both these sectors are indispensable to the overall economy um, i think you know one thing which has happened during covid is it's given people the opportunity and the ability to reassess the business mix to reassess how they do business um, you know, I was reading a joke. Um, I'm sure all of us are receiving multiple forwards from friends and families and, 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 and everyone else. But there's one particularly interesting forward I received some time back where there's this cartoon of an opinion poll happening within an organization to ask um, who in the organization has been most responsible for the digital transformation of the company. And it's a multiple choice question. And option A is the CEO of the company. Option B is the chief technology officer of the company. And option C is COVID-19. 
and i think many of us would acknowledge that had it not been for the situation in which we find ourselves in the kind of working from home arrangements which we've actually landed up with would not have been possible so you know to my mind um as long as countries exist as long as companies exist there will be a need for property there will be a need for commercial real estate people will need to live people will need to eat and gradually we are seeing more and more transactions going online um sometimes there are pulls and pushes which sort of expedite or slow down the pace of transferring purchases across but you know if you look at indonesia right fourth largest country in the world in terms of population 280 million people spread across 14000 islands if ever a country required a strong digital infrastructure indonesia is it so um, i think both of these industries are extremely important to the future of indonesia and i see both of them in due course continuing to thrive uh, thank you so much we've we've got um uh two people lined up to ask questions personally at the moment uh one actually um comes from within your organization i hope he's going to be kind to you in your last week um if i could uh invite charles co to uh ask his question please hi thank you chris i think this question of course not directed to sumit uh, but i want to direct this to david uh interesting study that you shared earlier uh my question is the with the highly anticipated mega project of new capital city in indonesia how have your business approached this opportunity and have you seen significant in terms of flow uh of query or demands from multinational on this uh my thinking process is that with tony blair softbank ceo and also uae crown prince sitting at the senior steering committee for this project obviously this will attract multinationals to invest on this mega project thanks david wow that's an enormous uh, enormous question um and I, you know and obviously it was one that was uh, consuming us uh, in in the second half of last year particularly around the implications of of the go live for for the relocation of the capital to 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 Kalimantan uh, and ultimately you know we we've we've yet to see obviously that uh, move forward in a significant way and whether this pandemic has had a is going to have an impact on that in terms of whether a it goes ahead at all or b whether it is substantively uh, changed in terms of its timing we will obviously yet 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 see i think the the expectation from the sort of occupier community uh, the businesses was that potentially if you if you did not um, if you are not act, uh, actively engaging with government departments then potentially it had relatively small impact on 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 your business and therefore you would still regard jakarta as being the commercial center and where you would maintain uh, your your uh, main office operations and certainly in the short term we've not seen any of the corporate occupiers uh, uh, specifically looking at a potential wholesale relocation i think it's much more of a wait and see how uh, that pans out in terms of uh, of timing and impact on the jakarta economy you know whether we end up with a you know new york and washington type of arrangement government in one location and commerce in another that sort of to me feels like that that's the way it would eventually uh, uh, pan out i think as a as a market observer we've been you know a degree of you know not concerned but certainly we've wanted to understand not just about 
the, the relocation and the departments that are re relocating and the quantity of real estate that potentially is going to be required to support that new capital. But equally as importantly, what will the government leave behind in Jakarta? Because we're already, as I mentioned earlier, have been in significant oversupply in the you know, private sector, commercial real estate market for several years now. And if there suddenly is an, a, a, a release of enormous quantity of government office space into the market in almost a, a single hit in three or four years time, that, that potentially could have a very, very uh, major impact on, on the, the, the commercial sector. So I think the understanding of how the government is going to manage what we can still regard as being state-owned assets, because they own those buildings, what happens to that real estate? How are they going to manage that? You know, of that real estate, what remains fit for purpose? What should be disposed of if they're allowed to do that? What needs to be refurbished? Are they allowed to actually operate it on a commercial basis if they, or are they going to release it back to market and how would that happen? So I think there's, there's some very major implications about that that we have yet to see, uh, you know, how, how the story will play out and how the planning around that will be. But of course, it, it's, it really is um, a very potentially a very significant impact on the commercial real estate sector if it is not managed in a, in a comprehensive and strategic way. Um, thanks for that question. Very interesting. Th and thanks for your answer as well. I think it is generally anticipated that we're likely to get given a little bit of an update during the President's uh, Independence Day speech with regards to, um, to, to, to what extent the new capital can be expected to go ahead, given the current environment, um, whether there will be um, a slowing down or a speeding up of certain parts of the different processes and planning. Um, uh, Bridgeham Chairman Ainsley Mann is um, on the line, joined the panel to ask a question as well, mainly around your assertions regarding SOEs and Indonesia's success in the bond market summit. Ainsley. Afternoon, Summit. Ainsley. Yeah. I see you're showcasing one of Indonesia's infrastructure developments in the background there, looks like. Um, <laughs> a question for you. Um, Indonesia's almost one of the darlings of the bond market. It's been very successful in raising funds recently. Um, and in your, in your presentation, which I think you probably make reference to every year, uh, some of the challenges associated with the SOEs. And as uh, UK investors, we we come up against the SOEs quite a lot. Um, the lack of, de of deregulation, some of them, of the markets like energy. Um, you did allude to the fact that some of the SOEs are struggling and it, it could be an opportunity for a shakeup. Do you think the government would take that opportunity if it's still able to access the bond markets in, in the way it has been, been able to do recently? Yeah, look, I think it's a great question. Um, so look, it's no secret that there are some SOVs which are better performing than others. It's also no secret that some SOVs have actually over leveraged their position. Um, some of the government, government cabinet ministers have been remarkably frank, including Busri Mulyani, on a views that some SOE companies are over leveraged and not disciplined enough from a financial perspective. So I do think the government recognizes it. Um, yes, it has been having success in bond markets, but I would also hasten to add that these bonds are being raised for the better performing state-owned enterprises. 
Um, I actually, you know, have asked a similar question to a government official directly in that we have some SOVs which are not so high performing and which some people view as being over leveraged who have been to the bond market before. And my question is, will the government allow any of these SOVs to default? And to me, you know, frankly, I don't have an answer to that question, but I do think that if this current situation continues for longer, then we will be in a situation where there will be more than a couple of SOEs, which will need to figure out if they actually have their money to honor their commitments. And um, if they decide to default, yes, it will result in you know um, a black mark for Indonesia. But at the same time, I'm not sure the government will have the appetite or the money to bail all the SOEs out. Thank you, uh, Summit, for addressing that question. Um, another one come in over uh, HSBC's um, apparent support for uh, China in its action towards Hong Kong. Um, are, are there any potential implications for uh, HSBC's relationship with Indonesia? Or indeed, have you got any comments with regards to the relationship between China and Indonesia? Sure. So, you know, look, HSBC is a global bank. We operate in, you know, um, close to 100 countries. Um, we've been in existence for over 150 years. We try not to align ourselves politically with any one country because obviously that would not be a recipe for sustainability. We try and focus on banking. So that's, that's very much at the core of our ethos. Um, uh, Indonesia and China um, are two large countries where, Indonesia, where HSBC has a large presence. Um, I don't think um, there's going to be any impact with regards to our relationship with Indonesia. As we know, Indonesia continues to trade significantly with China. There's a lot of Chinese investment coming into Indonesia. We are seeing the, the, the trade corridor between China and Indonesia continue to increase and continue to expand. Um, so I don't see any, any impact to this from an Indonesia perspective. Um, I would also you know, hasten to add that HSBC has recently become the first bank to actually merge its own HSBC branch operations with its locally owned um, subsidiary in Indonesia. We became the first bank in Indonesia to do this. We brought in capital of close to a billion US dollars into the country. And one of the big you know, reasons for existence here is because we believe we can support the government. We believe we can bring investment into the country. We can link Indonesian companies, Indonesian corporates with buyers and suppliers elsewhere in the world. So um, this is one of our priority countries globally. So our focus on Indonesia is not going to change. Thank you. So uh, backing up your commitment with further investment as well with that uh, acquisition and integration. Um, excellent. Um, John Slack is also on. That question did come from John. Um, John, if you'd like to unmute yourself and pose your question to David uh, regarding whether businesses could, uh, property developers could actually continue to be recommended to uh, build in and around Jakarta. John? Yes. Uh, thank you very much, Chris, and thank you, uh, Sumit, and good luck with your next move. Um, David, um, you probably answered the question already, um, but if, for example, theoretically, you had a nice big piece of land in the middle of Jakarta, would you be going ahead with a 
skyscraper commercial office building at this stage, if you had a choice? Well, thanks, John, for that. Uh, I think the short-term answer is, is, is no in the current uh, situation. We, we were already in um, a significant oversupply, and we have, have been really since around 2000 and, uh, and 2017, 18. And you know, at the moment we are, at the beginning of this year, we thought we were beginning to see the recovery in the demand side. Um, and we were looking at occupancy in the commercial office sector of around around 75% uh, and with, a, with an upwards trajectory. Uh, and that coupled with uh, quite a significant decline in the future supply, all sort of began to bode well for a recovery for the office sector. I think certainly what we've seen, you know, for example, last year we saw about um, 260, 200, sorry, 280, 290,000 square meters of office demand last year. Our forecast back at the end of uh, March was that that was going to decline this year to around 50,000 square meters only. And that was largely based upon uh, occupiers who were already committed. I suspect that our numbers by the end of uh, this month may, may uh, be even more alar alarming. So I think that um, the outlook in the near term is not, is not promising for the for recovery of the office sector. Um, we have not yet seen the impact of COVID to know whether people will be actually looking to actively reduce their office footprint. I think certainly, you know, this is, as our global CEO said on a, on a um, CNBC call last week, the billion dollar question is about, it, have we seen the death of commercial office spaces uh, around the world? And, and his answer for that was, well, it, it, it's a yes and no answer. It's a no answer on the basis that if we look at adopting uh, social distancing requirements to, to meet safe occupation within office buildings, in theory, we all, especially in this part of the world, all need to increase our footprint to be able to occupy on a less dense basis. But the corollary to that is, is that if we are now having been forced to adopt uh, remote working and, and having most of us had a very positive experience with remote working and then uh, beginning now to look for the future and adopting a formal flexible workplace strategy, then maybe these two things balance themselves out. And really what they're saying is that if you, if you, if you do not adopt a flexible workplace um, strategy for your business, then you may need to increase your footprint for the future. But by adopting one, you may actually be able to stay neutral or even reduce this. And certainly in the short term, most corporates are saying, we believe we should be reducing our footprint and we will actively try to contain real estate costs and do so. But I think when occupiers start to look at the longer term, and especially around how we engage with employees going forward, I think we're talking about now, how do we leverage location, time, and technology to really engage with our employees, uh, you know, in respect of, you know, what does people place and business performance uh, become related to, to those things? So we're seeing a very uh, uh, changing landscape for that. So if you ask me, do the economics work at the moment as a feasibility study to develop a commercial office building, given the quantity of oversupply in the current market, given the uncertainty around what may be released back from the government when the capital city moves to Kalimantan, and given the, 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 the near-term 
significant pressure on rentals, then I would say it does not look an attractive time to be starting building an office building. Um, so I hope, John, that answers your, your question. Thanks, uh, David. I'll be in touch with you separately to look at other options. Uh, thank you. <laughs> of course, if David did have that sweet bit of land in the centre of Jakarta, he, uh, he might not be working and be on this panel right now either. Um, uh, Amit, I've, I've got a couple of questions uh, from uh, uh, Riska, who works with the Jakarta Post. Uh, Britcham has an excellent relationship with the Jakarta Post and often contributes um, comments to issues that are coming in. Um, and, and really the questions revolve around um, th this thing about whether digital sales are, are going to uh, shift emphasis and, and grow to any great extent within uh, the organization. So uh, what would you expect the shift to be over the next five years towards digital sales is part one. Um, Part two, um, I think you've already answered in relation to the um, re possible reduction of size in physical stores in the near future. And the answer to that is probably the balance will be retained. Um, but the third, the third one relates to consumer spending and um, disposable income. Economists are predicting um, that post COVID-19 Indonesian consumers will have less discretionary spend and would that possibly mean for an organization like yours um, that you might need to expand and include far more uh, lower end brands to your portfolio? Um, I think to answer the first question, uh, the focus is certainly now how do we accelerate everything which is digital. Um, when we say digital it's um, we're not really saying digital per se, we're saying an omni-channel business, which is how do we make sure that our consumer has um, the exact offering across every single one of our channels? That could be our own standalone e-commerce, that could be third-party marketplaces, which are a huge part of, of our sales right now, and that is our retail stores, and that could be anything from uh, new channels like chatting and buying through WhatsApp. So um, it's a tremendous focus. Uh, it has been, as I mentioned, for the last 18, 24 months, but it's certainly increased. Uh, and back to the original point, the entire organization is being um, developed to make sure that every single function looks at digital uh, holistically, uh, or rather looks at retail holistically. We used to really operate in silos where uh, my teams were kind of at the back of the office and and were an afterthought. Now it's um, very integrated in every single function, uh, maybe merchandising. I mean, I run marketing also, so that includes everything we do from a marketing. Anyway, 70% of all marketing spends and probably soon 90% will all be, uh, you know, all digital. So, so yes, the, the organization is gearing up for a complete uh, digital focus. And, and when we say digital is, is omni-channel, which means having our offering on every single channel, which is, we want to make sure that wherever our consumer goes, we are available. Um, and, you know, what the behavior is like is yet to see. Um, Indonesians probably will start going back to malls. So by no means are we seeing, are we saying that, you know, brick and mortar is, is dead. We, we still see that going to count for nine, 85 to 90% of our business in the next three years, um, especially after this, uh, the COVID situation stabilizes. Um, sorry, the second question was around? 
Thank you. Um, consumer discretionary spend probably being less. Um, are you more likely to embrace lower end brands and, and expand your portfolio that way? Uh, no, I think we've got a fairly extensive portfolio and we look at, um, you know, MAP has always been um, a purveyor of international brands. Um, what we have done over the last years is made sure that all the brands that we operate in Indonesia uh, have a very similar pricing to the rest of Southeast Asia, which was one of the biggest concerns. So um, I think if you look at sports, we have a really good range all the way down from uh, sneakers uh, at 250,000, a lot of them licensed brands that we produce, all the way up to the higher, more exclusive. So we don't foresee a mix. There's certainly going to be a, uh, an impact on consumer spending. But what we have done is optimize a, a lot more in our existing portfolio, uh, the merchandise and the price points, rather than going and looking at different portfolios. Uh, so we're looking at it. It's um, it's complex in retail because whenever we do purchase, it's six, eight months out from when the purchase is going to happen. Um, so the merchandise and commercial team are spending a lot of time on what that planning looks like. Where do we see the uh, economic recovery? What is the assortment and what is the average transaction value that consumers are going to be spending? Uh, so not a change in portfolio of brands, maybe better planning and optimization of the type of product and price point that we'll, we will be offering to customers. Thank you uh, very much, um, Amit. So I, I think we'll move to a couple of more um, personal questions, quick answers, I think, Summit, before we go to um, an introduction from you to your successor. Um, so this one comes from Noah Merling, um, who is the head of the Indonesian Leadership Forum, and she'd like to know what is your most positive takeaway, one positive takeaway from your, as we now know, six years in Indonesia? Wow. Um, having worked in a number of different Asian markets, I think I would say my most positive takeaway from Indonesia are the very large number of business people I've interacted with who actually are very ethical, very transparent, um, and they have, you know, what we classify as, you know, as the kind of standards that multinationals have in terms of anti-bribery and corruption. Um, their, their, their maturity, the transparency of the business, um, the way they, they, they conduct the business, the way they induct professional management into running the organizations. That has been a source of, frankly, of surprise to me because I've seen how some other emerging markets work. But to me, the kind of relationship which you know, um, I've been very fortunate to have with many of these large industrialists um, has been, frankly, um, probably the most positive um, point of the last six years. Uh, thank you, Sumit. And uh, a final uh, slightly personal question uh, coming from uh, our board member, Britchen board member, Ranjana Singh. Uh, Ranjana, if you would like to just take yourself off mute, uh, for those who don't know, Ranjana also heads up WPP. Ranjana, would you like to take yourself yes. off mute and ask? Sumit, what are your plans after you finish with Indonesia on 30th June? And do they involve Indonesia at all? Ranjana, I'm hoping that I'll be invited to your house for dinner on the 1st of July. But... <laughs> 
um, you know, you can see this nice sunset in the backdrop behind me. I think that's, that's where I might be venturing into. Um, but on a more serious note, actually, um, you know, after um, 26 years with HSBC, six years in Indonesia, six years before this in Vietnam, um, I think I feel the need and I think I deserve a short sabbatical. So I'm actually taking a break for a few months to spend some time with my mother back in India, um, attend to some, you know, personal um, R&R. And then I hope to come back refreshed for more. So you're welcome on 1st of July and we wish you all the best in whatever you do after this. Thank you, Ranjana. So did you hear that, everybody? Everybody on this webinar is invited to Ranjana's place <laughs> on the 1st of July to, to, to shake hands with Summit again. Um, <laughs> um, Summit, um, 30th of June is your last day formally um, and your successor is, is in town and around. Um, and I know you'd like to take this opportunity um, both in your capacity as president director of the bank and also uh, head of the bank that is the, has been the patron of BritCham, patron sponsor for uh, a decade plus. Um, please uh, in introduce us to uh, Francois. Thanks, thanks so much, Chris. So look again, thanks to everyone for the, you know, for the, um, for the farewell. Thanks, Chris, for organizing this. I'm absolutely delighted. You know, we've put in a lot of work into growing a strong platform for HSBC out here. And it gives me really good pleasure, great pleasure to be able to hand over to someone who I know can take our business and can, can take our relationship with BridgeCham and with our customers um, to significantly greater heights. Um, Francois has been working with HSBC for many years now. And over the last six years, he's been our CEO for HSBC in Bangladesh. He's had a lot of experience in a bunch of other countries. Um, he has been my good friend for many years and I'm delighted therefore that he'll be taking over from me. So I'm hoping he will not blame me too much for some of the messes which I have not told him about yet in terms of HSBC in Indonesia. Um, I'm really impressed. He's been, um, we've been interacting for the last couple of months and frankly, his ability to understand the cultural nuances in Indonesia, his tremendous um, um, progress in learning more Bahasa Indonesia than I could muster up in six years. Very impressed. I'll now, I'd like to ask Fraswa to sort of say a few words to everyone, please. Papa Fraswa, over to you. And uh, thank you very much to, to, to all of you. Uh, great to get this opportunity to get introduced to the Bridgesham Indonesia. As uh, Sumit mentioned, I am currently in Bangladesh. I've spent the last six years as CEO for HSBC. And before that, I've had quite a lot of other roles in the Middle East, North Africa, Asia, and, and Europe. So I'm still uh, based actually in uh, Bangladesh as I need to get my work permit and then my residency. And as you know, currently the rules are a little bit difficult, but I've already been approved by OJK, our regulator. And so I can't wait to be on the ground and then to work closely with quite a lot of you. Uh, I would like also to take this opportunity to say a big thank for Passmit, having it, he has done a great work and to do the integration you have heard we have invested $1 billion in Indonesia, so quite a, a big investment that he has supported and he has grown our business. And so I know I will have very, very big shoes to fill. And I, I thank you in advance for your support. 
and I can't wait to meet you in person when I can fly to Jakarta. Thanks, Francois. Thank you. Thank you, Summit, for the introduction to Francois. And of course, Summit has made it very, very clear to you, Francois, that the British Chamber of Commerce in Indonesia, BritCham, is the most active chamber of commerce in Indonesia. Please do not forget that fact. Yes, he has mentioned that several times. With the most <laughs> handsome chairman as well. Ainsley, right. <laughs> Um, so if everybody on the panel would, uh, while I'm doing a little bit of a wrap, if everybody on the panel would be kind enough to open up your, uh, your camera your, so that you're visible on webcam, uh, get yourselves ready to do um, a little bit so that these people, Summit, are some former board members, some existing board members, some, some regular attendees <coughs> um, from, uh, from among our membership. Um, but in in wrapping up, I, I would like to thank Amit and David, who may on this occasion feel that a little bit of a support act for Summit, but I'm sure both of you do appreciate that uh, it's been six years uh, providing support uh, to Britcham, and at this time of year, in particular, our AGM time of year, uh, those State of the Nation addresses that we referred to earlier. David and Amit, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your uh, expertise with the Britcham membership and our guests. We really appreciate it. Um, just to mention that in two days' time, we will have focus on the um, the uh, commercial, um, sorry, not commercial, industrial estate business in Indonesia, um, with uh, also Chikarang Dry Port and, and Colliers, and particularly relevant, as Summit did mention, that Indonesia needs to get itself ready to compete with Vietnam on this occasion to make sure that uh, it can uh, take some of that business that's looking to diversify out of uh, China. Um, and competitiveness in the manufacturing space in that regard is very, very important. Um, and uh, then beyond that, we're looking closely at education and vocational training and British expertise with NOCN and the British School Jakarta. And early in July, we'll be relaunching our environmental series with uh, an absolutely explosive uh, panel of experts. Um, with that, I would like to thank everybody that's uh, been on this webinar for joining us. Um, those who are guests and are not members of Britcham, to remind you that the team is going to be aggressively pitching you to become members uh, in, in a month or two's time <laughs> when it's practical to do so. Yes. yes. And, um, and with that, if everybody would just like to just have a wave uh, say farewell to Summit. Thank you very much, Summit. It's been a great relationship that we've enjoyed with you over the years. I've really appreciated it. So have my team. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks to all of you. See all you the so best. Much. See you in Calcutta. Thank you. Good luck, Summit. Thank, Thank you very much. All the best. Thank you all. Bye. Yes. All the best. Thank you. Bye.